At the beginning of this series, I wrote at the top of my notes my subheading, Unity and Diversity Part 1 of Who Knows? Remember? Well, I think I can pretty confidently say this will be seven parts. Today is Part 6. Next week, the concluding portion, Part 7. And, um, and, and it will be complete, which is fitting, right? Because of the number, 7. So, apparently, I'm really, really good at this. <laughs> accidentally, I was accidentally perfect, apparently. That's what I mean to say. All right, before I get struck by lightning, let's read the Bible. <clears throat> Romans 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. The King James, I believe, Tom says, for whatever is written in scripture. Am I right, Tom? Yeah. Yeah. For whatever was written in the former days, what's Paul talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. That's the scriptures. That's what was written in former days, and it was written for our instruction. That we, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May, verse 5, the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, would you come to the Lord in prayer with me? Gracious Father, uh, we, we just read... Um, an amazing prayer that Paul prayed essentially over the church, that, that we would speak with one voice in accord with Jesus, such that our voice brings you glory. And so it is today that we have sung songs, some ancient, some new. We have spoken your word in unison. We have with one physical voice, sang the same lyrics, recited the same scripture. And so, Lord, may you then take that that picture of one voice and impart it to the whole of our lives such that our lives would speak with that same oneness, that same unity that seeks to bring you glory and offer to you praise, not with lips only, but with our actions with our will, with our ambitions, with our thoughts, with our decisions. May we not be liars as we stand together and sing of your glory and your goodness and then leave and live in utter contradiction. Father, unify our voice around your glory as Paul has prayed for us. And Lord, if that is accomplished, if if we are nudged a little further in that direction together this morning as we study your scriptures, it will have been a good day. And so we thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. may be seated. 
One of the things that's fun about having children is that they ask lots of questions. Moms and dads, hold on. (laughs) I know you're thinking one of the things that is torture about having children is that they ask lots of questions. No. Children's questions keep life interesting. If it was just us grown people with our unimaginative ideas, uh, life would be quite boring and bland. No, children ask fun and good questions. Questions us boring adults with all of our stresses and burdens don't take the time to think about. Just this week, the question was asked to me, Dad, who is your favorite Star Wars character? And I had to pause. I paused so long they assumed I had like headphones in and I did not hear them. No, I was thinking deeply about this very important question. Big Star Wars fans we are in my house. This was not something I had yet spent any time considering. They knew their answer right away. Because this is what children do. They ask questions like this. They wonder, they ponder, they come up with their formulated conclusions and they share them with one another. Who's your favorite Harry Potter character? Who's your favorite Star Wars character, right? Meanwhile, we got stuff like bills, you know, grass, a collapsing economy, right? These things are filling up all the space in our minds. So recognizing the importance of this question, I took time to pause and ponder as I had not yet done and answered Yoda. Yoda is my favorite Star Wars character. He talks in backward sentences. He's wise. He's super old. Uh, And if you watch episodes one, two, and three of the Star Wars uh, nine movie franchise, then you'll see he he does amazing lightsaber battles, doing somersaults in the air uh, as a little, you know, like uh, alien looking thing. Uh, He's awesome. Okay? Now, that aside, there are also many other questions that my children ask me, most of which I cannot remember the next day, most of which are also hypothetical, which I refuse to engage in hypothetical scenarios. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? (laughs) If you could only have one dessert for the rest of your life, what would it be, right? Now, in that vein, I'd like to ask that we consider a question by way of introduction. If you knew you had only 24 hours left to live, how would you spend your time? Now, granted, that question is not as lighthearted as the Star Wars questions my kids ask me, but it's a good one. If you knew you only had 24 hours left to live, how would you spend your time? Now, there is a man who knew the timing of his own death and carefully planned how he would spend his last 24 hours. I'm talking, of course, about Jesus. And how did he spend those last few hours? Well, by having a meal, a meal that we just commemorated together with his closest friends, preparing them for his departure. In a little while, I'm leaving. You won't see me. Where I'm going, you can't go. Right? And he spent time in those last 24 hours praying to God the Father. Among the things Jesus did in those last few hours of his life on earth before his death, burial, and resurrection, 
was to pray for his disciples and for you and me, for the church that would be established in his blood, in what we know of, that is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. His high priestly prayer. That's the prayer we've quoted multiple times in this series already. Because what did he pray? He prayed, My Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is all of us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The high priestly prayer of Jesus and its emphasis on the unity of the saints is, it should not come as a surprise to us. It's something many of us are familiar with, certainly something we've discussed over the last five to six weeks. But the timing of it certainly puts a little color on those words, doesn't it? Only a few hours left to live. Only a few more things to say. Only a matter of hours before he would be arrested, falsely accused, dragged from one place to the next through the wee hours of the early, the early morning hours of the day, only to be then wrongly crucified, mocked and humiliated, only a few hours before all of this was to take place. And what does Jesus do? He says, okay, may they be one. It colors that request a little bit, doesn't it? You might even say that Jesus was metaphorically asked, if you knew you only had 24 hours left to live, what would you do? And he answered the question as is recorded in John's gospel. He would take the time to pray for the unity of his people. It's beautiful, isn't it? It should come as no surprise to us then that Paul takes up so much of this letter to the Romans to outline the ways that non-essentials can disrupt unity and harmony in the church. It should come as no surprise. Unity was an important aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus as it pertains to his church. It's important, therefore, to Paul who would explain the gospel to us, it therefore ought to be important to us, okay? And so ever since chapter 14, verse 1, we have been exploring four major principles of unity while exercising Christian liberty, okay? Christian liberty, again, just by way of review, briefly, we're talking about non-moral preferences, You have things that are obviously sin, they are off bounds or out of bounds, off limits. And then you have a whole host of activity that is benign. 
It's what you eat and drink and the entertainment and how you spend your time. It can be glorifying to God or it can be harmful to yourself. But as long as, as, long as we understand there's a distinction between what is overtly sinful and what is a non-moral preference, then we can begin the conversation about how to exercise those non-moral preferences. And what we find over these weeks is that there's a lot of ways to exercise these non-moral preferences that quickly become moral in nature. How we use that freedom in terms of entertainment, what day of the week we worship, when we do our Bible reading and devotions, do you do it in the morning, the first fruits, or do you do it at night because that's when you're sharp? Right? Do you, do you watch movies or do you refuse? Do you watch The Chosen or do you refuse? Do you only listen to music that's labeled Christian? Do you only listen to music that's labeled worship music? Do you listen to Hillsong or do you not? Because they got some wonky theology. Do you like Bethel worship music? Because they got some wonky theology too. Do you go to the Louvre in, where is it, France? Yeah, Paris? Yeah, that's in France, so I was right. <laughs> Do you go there and look at the artwork? Or do you go, no, that artwork was painted or sculpted by a sinful human being, a, an unregenerate you know, heathen who used or attempted to use his gifts of art to glorify himself or hedonism, right? There's a million different potential Decisions that we have to make in our lives that are not moral per se until it gets into the realm of how, where, when, and why we exercise those freedoms. Those are non-moral preferences or you might call them Christian liberties. So the four principles... We began number one, Paul says in chapter 14, verse one, accept one another or welcome each other. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel. Accept each other, but not to argue over differences of opinion. Now, he immediately begins with this idea of weak and strong. You who are weak, you who are strong. What is weak and what is strong? And it's important for us to recognize that these aren't insults, they're simple objective observations. Paul says those who are weak are they who do not understand their freedom in Christ when it comes to non-moral issues. Jews were hung up about feast days, Sabbath observances, and different meats and foods. They would not eat my home-smoked pork butt barbecue. They wouldn't eat it. It's pork. Even though Jesus appeared to Peter and he said all foods are clean. He gave him a sheet and he said, have, a, have at it. Have a picnic, Peter. All foods are clean. The purposes of that regulation were fulfilled in Christ. It's no longer necessary. You are saved by grace through faith, not by what you eat or don't eat. Right? Similarly, non-Jews who had come out of an idolatrous background were hung up on eating any meat that was offered to an idol. Why? Well, because eating a meat that's offered to an idol is the form of worship. It was part of a worship service to eat the meat that's offered to the idol. And so you are having, having if you will, metaphysical interaction and communion with that idol worship. And so to eat the meat as a believer, offended their conscience because they were reminded 
of their former way of life from which they were saved and didn't want to stumble back into it. And they thought, if I eat this meat, I'm now worshiping this idol. That makes me like an apostate with my Savior. And yet Paul had said, you know, food is food. However it's offered or cooked or served, it's irrelevant. Food is fuel, right? That's what, the, that's what us bodybuilders call uh, food. <laughs> food is fuel, right? It's macro and micronutrients, right? It's proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. It is vitamins and minerals. It is not spiritual. Food offered to an idol is offered to a nothing because there is no such thing as an idol, really. It's, It's a music stand. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of stone. It's nothing. But, friends, people were hung up about these things. We're not hung up on these things today, for the most part, but we do have various things that we would say, if someone participates in this non-moral issue, I think that disqualifies them. If I participate in this non-moral issue, in my mind it's a moral issue, I can't get past it, I can't partake, I can't view, I can't enjoy. Uh, You know, smoking a pipe is a great example. Some of the great men of faith, great theologians in history have smoked a pipe on a regular basis, they would actually keep it in their coat pocket, still kind of smoldering just a little bit, so it wouldn't take much to get that, get those aromatic tobacco leaves fired up again to have a nice poof while you walk and think and talk. But I know that for many, to, to place that flaming tobacco up to your lips, it's just, you, you couldn't do it, Right? There's too much affiliation or association with immorality and depraved behavior, addiction, lack of self-control, to even put something to your lips. You couldn't enjoy it. You wouldn't even begin, you, wouldn't, you don't even want to enjoy it. You see? So we, we have all of these things, friends, and that's okay. Paul says the goal of the church is unity in spite of these differences, these differences threaten to disrupt the harmony and the unity of the church. So here's how to avoid that. Okay, first and foremost, stop arguing with each other about stuff. You have liberty. You can't say he doesn't have liberty. He can't say you don't have liberty. Stop condemning each other over that. Okay, it's wide open. It's by grace through faith. And then as he continues, he goes, however... This wide open liberty begins to him in. It begins to, uh, to sort of settle in some guardrails for how these liberties are to be enjoyed, participated in, or not. And so that's where the second principle comes in, in the second half of chapter 14, where we accept one another without quarreling over this difference of opinion, but secondly, we build each other up without offending. The goal of Christian liberty is not to build yourself up or to enjoy yourself. The goal of Christian liberty is to build each other up. And so as you partake in these non-moral things, they must be done in such a way that they consider the build-up of one another, the encouragement of one another. That means not stumbling one another. That means not being selfish and preoccupied with pleasure 
Then we come now to chapter 15, the third principle, where Paul says not only, not only look to build each other up, but look to please one another the way Jesus did. All right, it goes from a negative almost, like don't use your liberty to cause someone else to, to, to stumble. And in chapter 14, he uses the phrase destroy. You destroy your brother. The idea being that you, 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 you send them into a state of moral paradox and frustration. You, you wreck their spiritual peace because you flaunt a liberty. It says now not, it's not just that you want to just maybe watch out, don't do, don't do this, don't stumble, don't destroy. He says now, now we're moving even further. Now use your liberty looking to please each other. That's a, you see how the, the guardrails kind of come in. Week by week, observation by observation, what began as a big wide open statement. Don't tell me what I can't enjoy if it's not expressly and overtly sin. Don't tell me. And then Paul goes, however, and little by little, how this is to be exercised rightly gets clarified. Please one another like Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to please one another like Christ? Well, Three things. Number one, it means to bear one another's burdens. To bear one another's burdens. Let's go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So if you're taking notes, number one, bear with one another's burdens or bear one another's burdens. First of all, as we noted last Sunday, the burden falls on you who believe yourselves to be strong, mature, seasoned in the faith. The burden lies with you. The idea here behind having an obligation to bear with and pleasing your neighbor, um, it implies patience. The idea is patience. Be patient with. Now, what does patience imply? Patience implies it'll take some time, right? When Leslie and I, we've been doing uh, little like, like parenting coaching classes and things like that for a long time. And um, uh, one of the things that we learned uh, early on and, uh, and that we remind parents with young children of uh, is that consistency is arguably the most important thing when it comes to discipline. To discipline in love, not in anger, not in, not in a lack of self-control. But once you got that covered, you have to discipline consistently. Every time the issue comes up, every time it sort of rears its ugly head, whatever disciplinary matter you're having to deal with, you have to address it every time. Or else the young developing mind of the two or the three-year-old will not associate cause and effect. They'll think, sometimes when I do this, I get a spanking. And sometimes when I do this, mom says, now you stop that. Sometimes I have to do this thing three times or four times or five times, and then I get a spanking. So I can do it four times. I'll only get a spanking on the fifth time. 
And what we do then is we confuse them. We confuse this developing young mind. Their, their mind is, is a, a sponge. It's an undeveloped, very immature sponge. What they need to know from like 12 months to like five years old is just simple cause and effect, okay? Action, consequence, action, consequence. Then you get into the relationship and then you get into other things and you reason with them. Now, why, why are we talking about this? Well, one of the things that we have to talk about then when we say, parents, you have to be consistent. What does the consistency imply? It implies that they will not get it the first time. Are you being consistent? Yes, okay. Then you have your answer. Are you addressing the issue every single time? Yes, but they're not stopping. Right. They're stupid. They're two. Right? Eventually, it clicks if you're consistent. But the whole concept implies you got to do this again and again and again. Otherwise, listen, what isn't required? Consistency. You see? The same thing goes with how we are to accept one another, how we are to bear with the differences with one another. The whole thing implies we're not going to get this overnight. It's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to be, but I talked to him one time. It's not going to be, the pastor addressed that one time in a sermon six years ago. Why aren't we past why aren't we, the whole church, all past this? Well, Paul right here says you have an obligation to bear with, be patient with the failings of the weak, the struggles of the less mature, the struggles of the less seasoned, the restrictions of the, of the weak or the, the mind who does not fully comprehend how to exercise liberty in a way that is God-honoring, in a way that doesn't condemn if this instruction to be patient with the less mature comes to you as an undue burden, I would suggest to you, you may not be as mature as you think you are. As we grow in Christ, the less self-centered we become and the more concerned with the well-being, the maturity, and with the evangelism of others we become. Some years ago, I was having a conversation with a brother trying to resolve some conflict, trying to tamp down an unnecessary disruption to unity. And in doing so, I quoted this verse to him, Romans 15, 1. You who are mature, you who are strong, have an obligation to bear with those who are weak. You have an obligation. And he immediately rejected the notion flat out as if the verse didn't exist. I knew then that I wasn't dealing with the strong Christian. I was dealing with one who was deceived, who believed himself to be strong, and who apparently believed himself to be above the text of Scripture. If your maturity doesn't make you more others-centered, then you are deceived. You may have a head full of knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. In contrast, Paul offers love, true, mature Christian love, edifies, which is to say it builds up, encourages, or pleases others. 
Now this is tricky, okay, because the truth is early developing Christian faith requires an awful lot of self-examination. You have to be, by nature, uh, uh, very self-reflective, even, even constantly aware of yourself, aware of bad habits that are continuing from your past life into your redeemed life. You are memorizing scripture. You are learning to pray. You're learning to read the scriptures consistently. You're learning how to journal. There is an awful lot of me-centered focus required in early Christian life because the scriptures are constantly confronting that which is still attached to us from our old way of life. It's what John MacArthur calls unredeemed flesh. We have a redeemed soul, but it's wrapped in unredeemed flesh with all of its urges and all of its tendencies and all of its habits. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Why? Unredeemed flesh. A redeemed soul, unredeemed flesh, and all of its tendencies. And so it is incumbent upon us to be self-reflective, self-examining. I've even heard it said, and I believe it's, um, there's a particular verse that alludes to this, that God is patient with us in that through the Holy Spirit, he does not reveal to us everything that is wrong, everything about our lives that is broken and missing the mark when it comes to following Christ. He reveals it to us little by little because if he was to show us everything, Every moment, every action, every habit that is in contradiction to a, a, an absolute following Christ in his footsteps, it would, it would just crush us. So you should assume, <laughs> you should assume there are things that the Holy Spirit has yet to reveal to you because he is a loving father who is patient with us and he is slowly revealing to us where our lives and the life of Christ are in contradiction, little by little, like a patient father teaching his son what he can handle, what he is ready to learn. However, there must come a point, friends, when we move from self-reflection, I got my issues, I got to fix this, I got to address that, the Lord is revealing this to me, help me, pray for me, encourage me, I'm struggling, I'm burdened, I'm, I'm, I'm too, hmm. I mean, there's a hundred other people right here in my sphere, young and old, and they're all dealing with the same stuff I'm dealing with, except that one is sick, and that one was born with a defect. And that one has a son who is apostate. And that one has a grandchild who is transgender. Okay? You starting to get the picture? At some point, it goes from, I gotta fix my habits to, I gotta be concerned about my brothers and sisters who are around me. If I love Jesus, this must be the case, which brings us to number two. We're going to jump ahead a little for time. Imitate the example of Christ. Imitate the example of Jesus. 
Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The exercise of Christian liberty must follow the example of Jesus. John MacArthur says, seek to be like Christ instead of demanding others be like me. Seek to be like Christ instead of demanding others be like me. Look, I, I can enjoy this movie, I can enjoy this music, why don't you get over it so it will stop being a burden to me? that you are hung up on these things. Paul says, instead of asking everyone else to accommodate your liberties, seek to be like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He, quote, did not please himself. He did not seek his own pleasure. He did not seek his own, he sought, rather, to please the Father. Jesus is the example. He is the model to follow He was not in the world to please himself. If Jesus' motivation was to please himself, he would have never left the glory of heaven. You think about that? Why would he bother? He's in glory. John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It was good, it was sweet. In the covenant of redemption, the son agreed to wrap himself in mortal flesh to take on the weaknesses of us mere humans in order that we might be saved. If he can come under the burden of our fleshiness, endure the scorn of sinners, the mocking of Roman soldiers, the humiliation and agony of the crucifixion, is it really too much to ask that you follow his example? Is it too much to require that you put aside a freedom in order to promote the unity of the church? This is why we're constantly defining terms in this series. What does it mean to be a Christian? Imitate the Example of Jesus. The word means to be a little Christ. Right? You guys know this? It was, it was first a, a, a slanderous sort of mocking term. Look at those Christians over there. Right? It was, uh, they, they think they're like little Christs walking around. Talking like him, being like him. Look at them. Pathetic. And we wear it like right? Like the king of England's coronation yesterday, all dolled up in all of his robes and all of his pomp. We wear the same, the, the, the derision of the name Christian. What does it mean, though? It means a lot of things. Among them, it means share one another's burdens, Sharing burdens is deeply concerned about, um, or, or certainly about weeping with those who weep, 
praying for each other like we did this morning, men, in Sunday school. But in this context, none of this is on tap. Paul says, be like Christ. And not in the fact that you pray for one another and you're, you're concerned with your grandson and you're concerned with your nephew and you're concerned with your health and you're concerned with your future. Okay, that's all fine and good. Bear with one another's burdens or bear each other's burdens in that regard, sure. But that's not the context of Romans 15. This is all about being willing to deprive yourself of a non-essential, non-moral preference in deference to your weaker, less mature brother or sister in Christ. If they struggle with that, Paul says, be like Jesus and live for a while under the burden of that struggle with them. The word here, um, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of another. The word literally means to come under the, the heavy weight of something. It's used all over the New Testament, usually in the context of carrying something heavy, like the men who bore or carried their friend on the stretcher to go be healed by Jesus. Or in, in Mark and in Luke, bearing a, a, a pottery jug filled with water. Or again in John, the bearing of a bag of stones. Same word, come under the heavy, inconvenient burden of setting aside your freedom for the sake of your brother or your sister in the Lord. For I have come down, Jesus said, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Later saying in John 8, I do always the things that are pleasing to him. Being like Christ means that we do not do that which pleases ourselves, but instead that which pleases the Father, that which pleases others. Notice then that Paul grounds this in the scriptures. He says, Christ didn't please himself, as it is written. What did he quote? He quoted Psalm 69 specifically, one of the great messianic psalms alluding to the reproach Jesus bore for the sake of the Father's will. There are words in that psalm like scorn, dishonor, and Jesus put himself under that burden, that weight for others. And so if we are to be a little Christ we are to do the same. And so that means, friends, when your Christian brother or sister struggles with something that is not a moral issue, they have a restriction, they have a frustration, it's, it could be tobacco, it could be alcohol, it could be entertainment, you pick your poison. You do not mock them for it, you do not flaunt the distinction, but you deprive yourself of that which you're free to enjoy because they matter to you more than enjoying whatever that freedom might be. This is what it means to be a Christian, Paul says. Be like Jesus. To please one another, like Christ, in the exercise of Christian liberty is a willingness to please God in spite of the fact that it means burden, mockery, pain, or suffering. Much less inconvenience. That's inconvenient. We should be willing to suffer anything in order to build one another up. 
to protect one another from stumbling and to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit with the bond of peace, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4. 1 John, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And how did Jesus walk? Not to please himself, but to please the Father. And so we bear one another's burdens. Secondly, we imitate the example of Jesus. Thirdly, I would ask that we pray like the Apostle Paul. We pray like the Apostle. Imitate the example of Jesus, but then pray like the Apostle. And that's what we find here in verses five and six. It's something of a prayer, almost like a, a, a benediction, something that is, is spoken over, right? A, a, a doxology even. But what is it? You can almost imagine verse five being prefaced with, you know, dear Lord or dear Father, heavenly Father, gracious Father, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live, how? In freedom? In joy? In satisfaction? In ease? No, what's the word? Go ahead. What's the word? We're in verse 5 of Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in what? Harmony. Yeah. Wealth. Peace. Ease. Full stomach. No. Harmony. With one another. Harmony with one another. What does this mean? Well, it helps to know what it doesn't mean in order to understand what it does mean. Harmony with one another. What this does not mean is live in harmony with one another's sin. It does not mean live in harmony with heretical doctrine. It does not mean live in harmony while singing biblically bereft worship songs that are more like me worship than God worship. We are not called to live in harmony with rampant pride or abusive and disqualified pastors or elders. I don't want to disrupt. No, he's abusive. We are not called to live in harmony with those who purposefully distort the gospel, adding to grace the expressed requirement of man-made rules in order that someone be saved or maintain their salvation. We are not called to live in harmony with those who claim the name Christian and yet walk in abject disobedience to the commands of Scripture regarding human sexuality, gluttony, laziness, gossip, forsaking the assembly of the saints, adultery, idol worship, the love of money, and so on. We are not called to live in harmony with these. These are matters of truth, and the truth divides. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, a sword that slices in half families. Families. Such that the father in a family who might find out his son has become a Christian, would turn him over to the authorities to be executed. 
See, the truth divides. Something as intimate as the mother from the daughter or the father from the son. So, how do we know this? How do we know that that's the kind of harmony Paul's talking about? Not the kind of harmony that that permits sin or heresy or additions to the gospel? Well, because of the very next phrase. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Look, in accord with Christ Jesus. That's a huge caveat. It's a qualifier to the previous statement. And so what does it mean? It means the harmony that we promote, that we insist upon, that we sacrifice everything for is in complete agreement with everything Jesus also said. Everything he taught, everything he required. Nothing, nothing less, but nothing more. Now those caveats aside, my desire for you and my desire for me is that we would learn to pray like Paul begging the God of mercy to help us to be agents of unity instead of agents of division. Agents of peace, not turmoil. Agents of love through sacrifice. And so the question came to me this week, and I offer it just um, like David says, my cup overflows. I'll say to you, my, my conviction overflows. Which is to say, that which the Holy Spirit convicts me of, congratulations, it overflows onto you. When was the last time you prayed and asked God to make you a sharp tool for the building up of others? To make you a quality instrument for the sake of the unity of our fellowship? Better yet, how many times have you asked God to bless you in comparison to the number of times you've asked God to make you a blessing to others. Bless this meal, provide for me, protect me. Uh, right? Congratulations, you know, my cup overflows. So I've given us some examples, just a few. Father, may I learn to promote unity through the restriction of my liberty for the good of others. Father, may you convict me where I have selfishly exercised liberty without concern for others. Father, in your mercy, remind me to get my eyes off myself and onto the needs, the struggles, the weaknesses of my brother and my sister in Christ. It's a good question, right? How many times have you asked God to bless you in comparison to the number of times you've asked God to make you a blessing to others? It's one of the best things that we started doing in my family and and occasionally remember to do, especially when eating out. Let's ask the blessing before we eat out. Dear Lord, bless this food, bless this fried chicken, bless this fried okra, bless these fried dumplings, bless it to our body, the nourishments of our body. Bless this carbohydrate feast. And then as soon as my family began to be aware of 
boy, we're asking God to bless us an awful lot. Um, Okay, Lord, may we be a blessing to our server. May we be a blessing to the other patrons who are having a meal around us. May we be a light in a dark place. The odds are good. I'm in a public restaurant. There's almost certainly, without question, a lot of people in that room with you who are on the broad way that leads to destruction. And you'll leave your carbohydrate feast that you ask God to bless and they will still be on the broad path that leads to eternal destruction. Can we just stop doing that and start saying, Father, may we bless you with how we enjoy the good things you've given to us. May we bless others in how we enjoy this meal and this time. May we bless our server. Hi, waiter, waitress, we're gonna pray for our meal. Can we pray for you? How many times have we asked God to bless us in comparison to the number of times we ask God to make us into a blessing to others? Well, Verse seven then brings it all full circle. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Does that sound familiar? Chapter 14, verse one. It all goes back to the very beginning. The opening, if you will, thesis statement. Accept one another. Welcome one another. Proslambano. Welcome, accept, be united, on purpose, knowing what you're doing, sacrificially promoting the well-being of others over your own desires. And when we get this right, when we get Christian liberty right, and the differences in the church, young and old, mature and immature, we will not breed division, but instead we become like a, a mosaic of distinct people working together to paint that beautiful picture Jesus described when he said this, the world will know me by your love for one another. There is no better definition of Christian, perhaps, than the selflessness explained in these verses. Now let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for our time. Uh, Truly, uh, you've given to us great great gifts. You said, I will not leave you orphans. I'll send the helper, the paraclete, to come alongside you, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and who is with us. You've given to us many good things, the rescue of our souls, the peace and the assurance that comes with it through the resurrection of Jesus. You've given to us the fellowship of the saints and the unity and the bond that we share. Lord, could we, could we stop asking for more and start offering you ourselves back in return? And say, Lord, use me to bless others. Get my eyes off myself. Yeah. Well, help us to do this. Uh, for your glory... And ultimately, uh, then what becomes our own joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
Let's stand for one last song.